Hello and welcome to Android Bytes, powered by Asper. I'm David Ruddock, and each week I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Raman, diving deep into the world of Android. And this week, we're embarking on a journey that I think is really interesting because it's an area that, like many of our episodes, nobody really talks about, um, in the, even in the kind of niche tech media. And today we're talking about eSIM, which is something that I know is exciting, especially to Pixel users because Google's embraced the standard so much, but it also has massive global implications as the telecom industry continues to evolve. And we have a very special guest today who's responsible for a very innovative product in this space. And I'll let Michelle introduce him. Thank you, David. So on today's episode, we've invited Christos from Telco Village. Welcome to the show, Christos. Thanks for having me. And so the topic of today's episode, as David mentioned, is eSIM. So for those of you who don't know, eSIM stands for Embedded SIM, and SIM stands for Subscriber Identity Module. It's a very interesting topic because there are not that many phones on the market with eSIM capabilities built in. But very recently, I discovered a product by the company that Christos works for that actually enables bringing eSIM to almost any Android smartphone out there. Most Android smartphones are compatible with this product. So that got me wondering, how in the heck is this possible? Knowing what we know or what we thought we know about eSIM, how is it possible to bring something that's supposed to be embedded into a device externally through what looks to be a regular SIM card? So that topic, that got me down a rabbit hole of uh, GSMA specifications of what the heck a smart card is, of what APIs are used in Android to talk to smart cards and all sorts of business. And that's kind of what I want to talk about on today's episode is like how the heck does communication with the SIM card module actually work? What makes an eSIM different from a regular SIM on a technical level? And that's why I wanted to talk with Christos, who's an expert in this field. Before we actually start talking about eSIM and how this communication between Android and an eSIM module actually works, I think it's important to understand why the eSIM actually exists, because there are two main reasons. One is the size. And that's probably the most obvious reason for anyone to understand why the eSIM exists. Because if you've used phones for a long time, you know that SIM cards used to come in much bigger sizes. If anyone has used the regular, the original credit card size SIM card, the 1FF size, but uh, I wasn't using phones back then that used that size. But I think most people today probably use the 2FF, 3FF, or 4FF, which is mini, micro, and then nano, respectively. Most of our phones today support the nano SIM card. That's what you find on most devices. But even smaller than that, you have the eSIM, which is embeddable into the device's motherboard. So instead of dedicating space for a physical SIM card tray slot that has to be removable, that requires extra space, maybe somewhere on the side or in the body, you can just build it directly into the motherboard, saving some space, which is very valuable on a small device like a smartphone. Then in the future... Soon, we'll have iSIMs, which are integrated directly into the system on chip, saving even more space that could be reserved for other components on the motherboard. I wanted to start off by asking you first, Christos, what do you know about the eSIM form factor? Because many people don't know, or at least I didn't know until uh, a couple of weeks ago, that there are actually multiple eSIM form factors. There's not just one size for an eSIM. There's a MF2, which stands for machine to machine form factor. And then there's also the WLCSP, which stands for the wafer level chip scale package. I know there's two different sizes and like I know there's different uses for them. I wanted to ask you, what can you tell us about them? 
Yes, uh, basically everything starts with a wafer, which is the, the circuit. And then you can build the package around it, depending on the use case that you have. And for the embedded SIM, starting with the machine-to-machine devices, uh, they wanted to solder them on, on PCBs, on printed circuit boards. And later, they wanted to have them in smaller devices, waterproof devices. And this is why the other form factors uh, came. We did exactly the opposite. We did not look into making them smaller, but installed uh, the eSIM wafer inside the SIM card form factor. And the reason for that is to create an opportunity for people with existing devices to benefit from eSIM on their devices, which makes the devices also more sustainable, using them longer and getting the benefit of this new technology. It's very confusing, but the embedded in eSIM doesn't actually mean it has to be embedded inside the device. It's something that you think you take for granted because it sounds like, oh, embedded means it's inside, but the specification doesn't actually say it has to be inside the device, which is a bit of a fun fact that Telco Village took advantage of with the eSIM Me product, which we'll talk about in a bit. Before we go down, I think I wanted to touch upon what actually comprises a SIM card that you hold in your hand. So for the most part, the reason we're able to go from the big plastic credit card size card down to the nano SIM is that most of it was just plastic. It's just like a covering, like a shield for the actual circuitry that you can clearly see is like the yellow part of any SIM card that you hold. That yellow part without all the plastic around it, that is what actually has the microcontroller. That's the circuitry. So this microcontroller, it has its own CPU, it has its own RAM, it has its own storage, it has its own I.O. circuitry, so that it can actually communicate with the card reader and whatever host device this SIM card is attached to. And this is the entire microcontroller, it has its own embedded firmware, and this firmware is responsible for communicating with the host device, and it also is able to store some contacts, some messages, so it's not very common nowadays, but a long time ago, people used to actually store a couple of messages or a couple of contacts directly on the SIM card rather than like in the cloud with Google contacts. And SIM cards still enable you to do that, but it's just not very common anymore. So this whole package, that circuitry, that's called a UICC, which stands for Universal Integrated Circuit Card. You also see sometimes it's referred to as a smart card, which is a generic term for any card with an embedded circuit. So a UICC is a, just a specific type of smart card that conforms to a specification that was made for this purpose. One of the differences between traditional SIM cards and eSIMs is that eSIMs make it possible to store and switch between multiple SIM profiles. That's one of the defining differences, at least most people recognize. So a SIM profile, for those of you who don't know, is what identifies the services that your device is able to connect to. So of course, like a carrier doesn't want any non-paying customer to be able to connect to their services. So you have a profile, that determines I can connect to the voice call service, I can connect to whatever extra services they have. I wanted to ask you, why do we need an eSIM to do this? Why can't we just retrofit existing traditional SIM cards to support storing and switching between multiple SIM profiles? Actually, SIM cards can store multiple SIM profiles, and we've been doing this for years before eSIM. The problem there was that uh, you also store keys, and so those solutions were all proprietary solutions. Everybody was having his own solution as a mobile operator. You could control those cards. You could remotely upload SIM profiles there. The actual problem was the interoperability between parties. And 
This interoperability's main problem was sharing the keys of your network, the keys that the subscribers identify themselves with the network with another party. And with eSIM, which is a standard, that the problem was solved because of the eSIM profile is including those keys without the necessity to share them with somebody. So when you share the eSIM profile, you don't share any keys. And the GSMA, uh, which released the standard, is creating the root certificate. So the EUICC, which is the chip, has a certificate from the GSMA. The RSP server, which is serving the profile, has a certificate. So there is an environment created uh, with trusted parties, and therefore the communication is not possible. So it's not that it's something new with the mobile SIM profiles, but now it is a standard that is globally established and agreed so that it can be executed. This is the main advantage of eSIM, that this technology enables the interoperability between manufacturers of devices, providers, and mobile operators. Yeah, so interesting point about that is while I was researching for the original article that I wrote on this, I learned about the Apple SIM card. For those of you who don't actually had a SIM card, a physical SIM card that let you store multiple profiles onto it, or I think it came pre-installed with multiple SIM profiles from multiple different U.S. carriers, and you could pick and choose which one to use. But as Christos mentioned, the problem with that is it's not interoperable. If you were to use an Apple SIM card on an Android device, you wouldn't be able to switch between the profiles that were stored on that SIM card because only Apple's iOS was set up to do that. So by introducing the eSIM standard, which standardizes the way these profiles are managed, then you could switch between profiles in a standardized way. So like right now, there's no way to, you can't like transfer your eSIM profiles from an Apple device to an Android device, but the way in which those profiles are managed is now standardized. I wanted to talk about now your product in particular. So as we mentioned before, the E, the embedded doesn't actually have to be within the device. And your company, Telco Village, actually took advantage of this carve-out in the eSIM specification to basically create a product that lets you enable eSIM on any device. I wanted to ask you, how exactly does that work? Can you tell us a bit about it? Let me add something to what you just mentioned with the E and the GSMA standard. The standard requires that the profiles are stored in the physical hardware so that they're not stored in as a software. That's the requirement. And this physical hardware, if it's soldered on the, on the motherboard, or if it's in another way, you know, connected to the motherboard through the SIM card, is still sufficient for the standard. As I mentioned before, we were doing multiple SIM profiles and SIM cards before. And actually, we, we registered the eSIM.me domain in 2015, one year ahead the release of the eSIM standards, which is funny. And we were happy that the eSIM standard hit the market because this created the ability, the interoperability, as, as you mentioned. So our goal was to create a removable eSIM that will upgrade, that will add the eSIM functionality to existing devices. But this was not the only goal. Our goal was also to create it without rooting a phone, without soldering anything, without opening a phone, losing the warranty. So we were talking with our colleagues and uh, with, with friends, etc., and they were telling us that this is impossible because we need to have some kind of support from the hardware or the software, etc. So eventually we, we used the knowledge of 20 years in telecommunications 
We used our experience with multiple SIM profiles on the SIM card, and we created the eSIM card, uh, which is holding the EUICC chip in the form factor of the SIM card. And while our goal was to lift the users of existing devices to the level of eSIM compatibility with devices with eSIM built in, we actually went beyond that. Because if you see, for example, a Google Pixel or any device with built-in eSIM, it's only for a single device. You cannot use that eSIM in another device. So with our solution, we created eSIM capabilities for Android devices, but also beyond that. So once the eSIM profile is downloaded and activated on the eSIM card, you can remove this card, install it in your laptop, in your Wi-Fi router, in any device with a SIM card slot and benefit from this connectivity. And the second thing that we did is it's the world's first dual eSIM solution. It means that you can have two eSIM profiles active at a time on those devices. And this is also the reason why we have also customers that already have eSIM built devices. Google Pixel is a good example. And the bio product for these two reasons, to be able to move those eSIM profiles to other devices. For example, my smartphone runs out of battery. Where's my connectivity? Or I, my display is broken or any other thing is damaged. Another reason is when you want to transfer your profiles from one brand to another. It's very easy. You just do it in seconds. And some operators, when you want to transfer your eSIM profile, they charge you between $10 and 40 euros. They call it replacement card. They make it very difficult for you. So we, th those customers save headache and, and money. And uh, so there's functionality and there's also convenience. We created the eSIM app in a way in the Play Store the device list has around, I think, 15,000 compatible devices with our product, but there is a, uh, a multiple different Android versions that can be installed. So it's impossible to create a list which device is compatible and which is not compatible. We come to this later, how we, we check the compatibility, but the app will tell you, you download the free app and it will tell you your device is compatible or not compatible. And when it's compatible, you can order the ECB card, install it, and then you can just start downloading ECB profiles. And we created the, let's say the a variety of products to align to, I have a single device. I only want to use it there. So I don't want to spend too much money. I don't need the other features, or I want to switch and manage the card between devices, etc. I need more space and more storage. And therefore we created a variety of products and our customers are excited about this product. And this gives us also the motivation to continue. We have also a future plans. We can talk about this later, what we are planning to do with the secure elements. Right. So it's definitely a very ingenious product. There's nothing else like it that I could find on the market. And just both in what it does and how it takes advantage of a part about the specification that I completely wasn't aware of before, which is the fact that removable embedded SIM cards are possible and that it's actually explicitly something that's supported by the GSMA's eSIM specification. They actually does explicitly mention removable EUICCs. And anywhere you look up, you, if you Google eSIMs, almost everything says it has to be embedded in the device. And that's wrong. It doesn't have to be that way. And this product proves that. And the actual specification allows for that. And the other interesting part is as you mentioned, you built an app, eSIM Me, that communicates with your eSIM.me card, 
without using root access, without having to be a system pre-installed app. And that's the other bit that I found really fascinating. Like, how is that possible? How is it possible to just download a standard user installed app from the Play Store and have it communicate with the card that you insert into your device? Like, how do you do that? And that's something that I spent a bit of time diving into. And I think I want to talk about that now. Because as we know, SIM cards are meant to be removable in general, and you're meant to swap them between devices. There has to be a standardized way for the host device and the host operating system to communicate with the firmware on that card. Because if there wasn't, then your SIM cards would be tied to a single platform, and that's not very useful. So I want to ask you a bit, Chris, can you tell us about how that communication works? Can you describe the software that's running on the UICC slash EUICC and how does the host operating system like Android communicate with it? The software on the UICC, we can simply call it eSIM OS. So it's a software that manages the MCU and the storage, etc. And the interface to the host, as you mentioned, because it's meant to be removable, etc., is just a smart card, ISO 7816 with APDU commands. It's, it's that simple. And the content of those commands, of course, need to be aligned with what we send from the ECME app to the ECME card so that it does the actions that we wish. It's basically that simple. Right. So the, this eSIM OS, can you tell us a little bit about that? What kind of programs, I guess, very, very, very basic from what I read, Java card, SIM applets. Like, can you tell us a bit about what's actually running on the eSIM side? The most important part here is the certificate. There is a mechanism that requires the EUICC to authenticate itself to the, let's call it a network or server, the EUICC being the client. And the other way around. So both need to authenticate each other. And from there, there is another piece of software that does the work, which is, uh, we are going to talk a bit later. The LPA, the local profile assistant can also be implemented in the UICC. We are going to build a version that will have it, but it, it's not at the moment. So the UICC is only fulfilling the GSMA standard in terms of exchanging the information with RSP. Okay, so just in summary, all this communication is supposed to happen in a standardized way. You have a Java card applet that's running in the eSIM OS of the EUICC, and that communicates both ways through AppDo commands, which stands for Application Protocol Data Unit Commands. And all of those commands, those are following a standard definition, the ISO 7816-4. So all of this is, is kind of standardized. But one thing I was interested for me to learn about was that Prior to Android 9, which introduced the Open Mobile API or OM API, that there was a bit of inconsistencies in the way that Silicon would actually have their devices communicate with the smart card on their device. So I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit about the situation. Like prior to Android 9, can you tell us about what it was like for an app like eSIMME to communicate with the eSIMME card? Like was it even possible? And what did OMAPI do to change that? We have customers using Android 5 on their phones. This is the oldest Android version that we have seen customers successfully using the ESME card and ESME app with. The SIM Alliance OMAPI is the OMAPI library that was before Android and was used by OEMs like Samsung, Huawei, Samsung 
did a very good job implementing this and also continue to use Simalines or MAPI even beyond Android 9. So you have both APIs with them. And sometimes we have to switch between them depending on the implementation of the SIM card readers because they may not be accessible and we try the one or the other way. But the way was the same. There are also other ways of communicating with the SIM card, with a very independent protocol, with binary SMS, with a lot of things that are not really related in to Android. So, so a network provider, mobile operator can talk to its SIM cards uh, through the mobile network. They basically send communication that is transpassing through the Android system. But if we are talking about an app communicating, this is then done through OMAPI and then eventually open a logical channel, sending a video commands, uh, et cetera. That's, that's the implementation. So OMAPI, by the way, if I didn't mention before, was introduced in Android 9 for AOSP. Prior to that, as Christos mentioned, some OEMs would integrate the library themselves but it's now a standard feature as of Android 9 and later. And I believe there's even a compatibility test suite test that checks for OMAPIs, whether or not it's been implemented correctly. So your app, as you mentioned, works without root and depending on the OS version, it uses OMAPI commands or other commands, depending on the device. I wanted to ask you now, how exactly is your app allowed to send these commands to the eSIMME card? And how do you ensure that only your app is able to communicate with the eSIMME card and not just any other third-party app that you download off of Google Play? Like, how does this privilege work? As I mentioned before, our goal was not to require any permissions or not to require any unnecessary permissions from the user or the OEM. The only permissions that we ask the user to provide, and these are only optional, is uh, permission to use the camera if you want to scan the QR code to download the eSIM profile, and the gallery to access a QR code. This is very interesting because the way that it works is, uh, for example, you buy an eSIM, they send you an email with a QR code. Some operators send you a postcard with a printed QR code that's, that's not really <laughs> environmental friendly and not really digital, but yeah, they, they just print on a SIM card the QR code. However, if I buy online and have it delivered to me by email, I would store it in the gallery. And then from the gallery, I can read it with this in the app. So these are the two permissions we ask. But if you don't want to give this two permissions, you can just enter it manually. It's like a URL that you enter with some code and then you can download the profile. The rights that we get are sourced by the card. So the card has certificates that declare which applications that are signed with specific keys are allowed to access. And we have a set of keys, which means that our ECME app has access but we are also open to provide access or similar to the entitlement that, that manufacturers give to other, let's say, developers to access their EUICCs. Uh, we have the same option. So developers are open to contact us in this regards. With the advantage, I would say that even if, if somebody says, I have Android running on Google, Android running on Samsung or, or in, in other manufacturers, they would require the entitlement from each manufacturer, not Google as an Android, but Google as a manufacturer, Samsung as a manufacturer, because it's access to the hardware. So this is done with the keys. At the same time, we allow access to the system apps so you can access the eSIM 
Mikard with your SIM manager from the Google settings. Up to Android 11, it was even possible to download eSIM profiles because the eSIM account has a higher priority to the embedded USCC. But with Android 12, they specifically address the embedded USCC so that you have to use the eSIM app. But the system itself has access to the card. It's the EUSCC standard. So we allow access to the system itself as well. So it's quite interesting the way mechanism that this works is actually a certificate that declares which apps can interface with it on the Android side and whatever other operating system is available. When I was reading through this, I, I learned about this is all part of a UICC carrier privileged permission. So basically, it's a way for an app to access certain privileged telephony APIs without actually having to be system pre-installed or having to be granted a specific permission. So this way, eSIM.me is the only user-installed app that can interface with the eSIM.me card. You can't install any other app on Google Play that's able to do what the eSIM.me app is able to do, which is download and manage profiles on the eSIM.me card. This actually is quite similar to like all other SIM cards, basically. You have your carrier apps, which are able to access carrier-privileged APIs in this, in this very similar way. This is all standardized through the file that holds certificate, which is called an access rule file, I believe. So um, it was very interesting to learn that. But one thing that I did discover while I was using the eSIM.me app is that it's not able to be pre-installed. It's not able to be integrated into Android settings, like, say, Google SIM Manager app is. And now I wanted to ask you about why that's the case and what would be required in order to get an eSIM app actually integrated into the Android operating system as like, you know, you go to settings, you're able to directly add an eSIM profile like you can on a Pixel phone. So can you tell us about some of the things that would be required in order to do that, in order to actually integrate your app into Android OS settings? What is required is a communication to two directions. The one is the communication to the RSP, the server that holds the eSIM profiles. This is standardized how it's going to be implemented. And the other is the connection to the UICC. This application does not need to be certified because it's only the transport, let's say the translator. It downloads the profile, it slices the profile down into APDU commands, and then it is sending it to the UICC. Prior to this, there is the authentication process necessary where the APA just exchange the information between those two. And this is why the LPA does not really have to be in the app. It can be in the system, it can be in the app, and it can even be embedded on the chip itself. This is called LPA-E for embedded this time on the chip. A couple of terms thrown around just now, as you mentioned, LPA before stands for Local Profile Assistant. It's actually part of the GSMA's eSIM standard. So if you look up the GSMA SGP.22, one of the sections talks about local profile assistant for device, and the other one is local profile assistant for embedded. So LPA, in terms of Android, is the eSIM management app. Google's SIM manager app would be an example of an LPAD implementation. Um, another term that Chris has mentioned before, RSP, which is the remote SIM provisioning. The server on the carrier side is called the SMDP+, so Subscription Manager Data Preparation+. Plus. And that server that they deploy is what supports RSP, remote SIM provisioning. But that's all not Android. What is Android side is the LPAD, which is the application that actually helps the user download SIM profiles using a QR code, either downloaded or something they can scan. 
There are several applications that basically act as an LPAD for Android. The eSIM.me app is basically kind of like that. Then there's also an open source project, which I talked about in my post called OpenEUICC. I wanted to ask about your thoughts on this project and what are you doing in relation to it? I think that this is something for OEMs to implement their LPAs in their systems. Something that we didn't mention before is how can Google make sure that the map is implemented accurately in the devices. Fortunately, since Android 9, the map is there. Unfortunately, the OEMs do not implement it correctly or fully. So maybe there is no MAPI, maybe there's no MAPI only for the NFC chip, but not for USCC, or maybe there is a MAPI for the USCC, but there's no access to the SIM readers. And this is why we have created this compatibility check. And maybe this open USCC is a way for those OEMs to an update, to integrate this functionality to their phones. We as ECME are welcoming other LPAs to access our cards because our card, the eSIMI card, is a secure element. And the secure element, the one thing that it can do is store eSIM profiles. But the secure element is the same technology that we see on smart cards for credit cards. So we can store payment information. It can be sliced into secure domains. And those secure domains can hold information like keys, like payment information, like any other kind of tokens, etc. that users or developers are going to develop and create other products. So, so we create the foundation on the physical level and provide the access. And this can enable other developers to basically build on top of that. So LPA is just one thing. And with the secure element, I think we provide a platform and a marketplace where these things can become reality. And the ECME app is not only an LPA. Actually, it started very primitive. And we expanded because we've seen the feedback from the audience that uh, now that I have the storage to basically store eSIM profiles, where do I get those eSIM profiles from and why do I have to go somewhere else, etc. And we are creating a carrier neutral marketplace where everybody can offer their eSIM profiles. We are going to do KYC. For them, in some countries, it's required to know your customer. And if I am, let's say, in Germany and I buy an eSIM profile from Deutsche Telekom, from T-Mobile, I need to do KMC there. And then if I switch to Vodafone, I need to do KMC there. And there are a lot of hurdles that make this standard a bit inconvenient. And while if you have a platform, compare it with Amazon as a marketplace. Your credit card is stored there. Your address is known. You only click and buy. And we want to create a similar marketplace for ESIM profiles so that users do not have to start this onboarding process from the beginning. Either it is authentication, either it is payments, gateways, et cetera. This is, I think, where strategically maybe we can zoom out a little bit. And just like the situation with telecom operators, for example, they have a lot staked on keeping the physical SIM standard alive as long as they can. Especially here in the U.S., they are very, very attached to it, and they really have been very reticent to give it up. So I'm sure that that is also something that has kind of slow walked this technology for a number of years now, especially as we go to eSIM. Because to me, the carriers, 
like you said, they intentionally tried to make this difficult or impose a cost in a very arbitrary and capricious way. It's, it has nothing to do with helping customers. It has everything to do with making switching services and products very difficult. So it's interesting to me that even eSIM, which I think was in many ways designed to be friendly to the carrier's concerns about competition, that y'all were able to come up with the solution that actually <laughs> modularizes the standard and says, oh, you can take it anywhere with you now. And that to me is what makes it so interesting. Have you had any conversations with any carriers or manufacturers or other people in the industry who said, I was waiting for somebody to make this, I knew it was possible? Or is it truly just surprise? Like, we literally did not think this could be done. I agree with you. Operators hostly think that if they stick to a SIM card, they lock down the customer. But of course, the SIM card can be replaced with another SIM card. And eSIM is a threat to their eyes because they think that on the market, they're going to lose a customer. They don't see that this customer is going to another operator that could be themselves. So if I don't offer something, they cannot buy from me. And if I offer eSIM with an app, like some operators do, then I cannot actually call it eSIM because they don't give you the activation code to basically see it as an eSIM standard. But this being said, I think that this is similar to the number portability that you didn't have in many countries over the years it established this way. Uh, we have countries uh, like Saudi Arabia <laughs> where every operator has eSIM and where they offer 30% discount to eSIM compared to SIM card. I mentioned before they know your customer, the onboarding. If you have prepaid customers, you have onboarding costs and those customers can leave you anyway. So you don't make any margin if they don't stay for a time with you. So I think that we cannot convince operators that eSIM is something good for them and for the future, but we can see an analogy with, do I need a website? Do I need a web presence? You know, years back when online stores, et cetera, they created. We just let them take their time. We, of course, we've spoken to many operators because we are an operator ourselves and we have the contacts to all of them. And they, the most of them think of, we are going to wait until there are eSIM only devices and then we have to move. But we also know, and we see this in some markets, that if one operator starts advertising this, starts pushing marketing this, then the others will follow in no time. So we see in Europe, for example, there is a no roaming between countries uh, agreement. So within the Euro European Union, there's no roaming charges allowed. And then you have, let's say, Polish operators selling in Europe, uh, Czech operators selling in Europe. It doesn't help the German operators to protect their SIM card because they're going to buy from somewhere else anyway. And the same will, uh, is happening in North America. We, we've seen Canadians buying Asian eSIMs to use in North America because they only need data so they don't have to pay for voice packages or whatever. I think it's just a matter of time. It's, it's, eSIM is a new path and the faster they jump on this, the better market share they can secure. Yeah, I think the convenience of eSIM really can't be understated in some situations. Like my cousin, she's visiting us from Bangladesh. And of course, she needs a local SIM card because she's here for several weeks. So because she has an iPhone, I remember that T-Mobile actually offers an app that just completely guides you through the process of setting up an eSIM profile within the app and paying within the app. 
And within a matter of like five minutes, we had service up and running for her. I didn't have to go anywhere else. I didn't have to go to a store. I didn't have to shop around for one of the various MBNOs that offer plans. It was just at home, connected to my Wi-Fi network, five minutes up and running with a new plan. And as you mentioned, even smaller carriers, like in surprise markets like Canada, connecting to an eSIM offering from a Hong Kong 3, 3 Hong Kong, I believe, is the carrier that many of them are subscribing to. There's an opportunity there that, that a few carriers are actually taking advantage of. And, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation where more carriers are waiting for devices to go eSIM only, but devices won't go eSIM only if few carriers are supporting eSIM. So, like, it, we're kind of a stuck at the standstill where the highest-end premium phones have an eSIM and they also have a physical SIM card slot. But there's also a little technical limitation with the eSIM currently in that most eSIMs only support having one of their SIM profiles active at a time. And as you mentioned, Chris, before, your solution supports enabling multiple eSIM profiles because you can have one eSIM profile enabled on your eSIM.me card and then another one enabled on the phone's built-in eSIM. Or you could have a phone with dual SIM card slots and you could have two eSIM me cards. But something interesting that I learned about recently is that Android 13 is implementing a new feature called multiple enabled profiles, which would enable you to have two SIM profiles stored on an eSIM at the same time. It would allow you to use both of them at the same time. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on this multiple enabled profiles feature and whether or not it's something that actually could be done with an eSIM.me card. This is a great feature. Uh, I really welcome this. Uh, if it's available for us to access it, we are going to implement this also for ECME. We had uh, customers, actually, let's start to define how those multiple ESIM profiles can be used. It is determined by the number of SIM card slot and eventually by the number of modems that I have. So if I have two modems, I can have two subscriptions active at a time. And even in some cases uh, where somebody has a dual SIM phone, but wants to use a second SIM card slot for his SD card, it will be of benefit because he can have one eSIM card with two profiles addressing the two modems while he has an SD card on the second SIM card slot. So there is a use case for this, and there is we, we have received many requests for this. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a good feature, and we will implement this if the access for this is possible. Means if the OEM will enable this access because it's depending also on them how limited this new feature will be similar to the Omapi on the, on the previous things. From what I read, according to Google's patent, it doesn't actually require two modems for MEP to work, which the conventional wisdom would that you would need for every active SIM profile. If you want an active data connection, you need a second modem. But uh, DSDS or dual standby, dual SIM, dual standby, you could still have eSIM MEP work with a single modem. Google's patent describes a opening two logical connections from the SIM card to the modem. And yeah, I'm curious to see how it's going to work. It's something Google hasn't announced yet, but there's some documentation available for it. And whether or not this can be extended to removable EUICCs is another story entirely. I haven't seen the patent, so I cannot tell something about the patent, but I've seen the description where you can basically address two or three modems I haven't seen a device with three modems, but at least from the theory point of view, this is possible. If their patent can talk to multiple, let's say, networks, et cetera, in a time difference, then maybe this is also possible. So theoretically, it's possible. Uh, if there is a requirement from the network side, that's another thing. 
So open to see what this pattern will look like and how the, let's say, the mobile network will or will not have to implement part of the pattern to, to make it work. And another reason this is, I think, also starting to come up is that as 5G networks reach saturation, there are going to be use cases where having multiple networks actually is going to provide a material benefit to the end user. And that end user could be somebody doing something like downloading a very large file. We've already seen heterogeneous networking technology on like Samsung phones. They've had this for years where you can use Wi-Fi and LTE at the same time uh, to boost your download speeds. Obviously in America, carriers hate this feature because they would rather you be on Wi-Fi and nothing else. But it goes to show that there are going to be use cases that drive that. And so if you are able to have a phone that uses what you know to be the most reliable data connection or device that uses the most reliable data connection day to day, but can keep an active profile enabled that is particularly for like super high throughput downloads, maybe. And maybe those are only necessary during business hours. And so you have it connected to the high throughput network when the device is active and being used, but when it shuts off, it goes down to the super low power network. And maybe that's like a 5G IoT network where it's really just sending some basic packet data time to time to check in. So I'm sure that there are all kinds of use cases out there that have really yet to be explored for things like this. And as we make it more integrated on the device, I think that we'll see those use cases start to emerge. The biggest limiting factor, and I, I'm guessing you would agree, Christos, is that like the physical side of a SIM card is that it has to go in something, you have to get it, and there's one SIM card per device, and that just makes doing anything complex or unique as far as a configuration much more challenging. When you're making SIM cards, it's probably a very big scale kind of thing you're doing. Like an operator is not going to be like, oh, we're going to make this very special configuration for this one customer on our network that's uniquely coded to these SIM cards and they can do special things that other customers can't. Nobody's providing that kind of service. So it would make sense that the technology should move to the device and end user side to be managed there so that the implementation is just dependent on how much does this cost me to do this? So the carrier just goes back to being that dumb pipe instead of a glorified services provider, which we know they all aren't. <laughs> They're just bits. So this is really cool. And I think that you guys have an amazingly interesting product. And this is usually where I would plug where Asper fits in with it. Um, this one's a little harder for us because, you know, we do have mobile data use case and it's very interesting. But I've really thought about this and I'm like, I'm not sure exactly. But I am sure that eventually we will have customers where more flexibility around mobile data, 5G, and eSIM is going to become a priority because it's a matter of flexibility for businesses. Being able to switch providers on the fly would be an amazing way to potentially reduce your costs or to up your data throughput if you need more and just be more competitive. This is all about helping customers move faster, right? Making decisions about their network or switching networks or whatever it may be. And I think that that is a super defensible goal for any business in the tech industry because this is a problem, and it's a problem that in many ways has been artificially constructed as a business competition barrier. And it's cool to see somebody starting to tear it down. Actually, we are working with mobile operators, and we try to visualize this opportunity. If I, for example, as an end customer, I have to choose between two networks, one being the premium network, which is expensive, and the other one, which is cheaper with not a good coverage. I don't have to choose. I can use both. 
So having the ability to use both, imagine that if, for example, you introduce a prepaid model where customers can buy the service for a day, but not to go to the shop, not to wait for shipping, etc. They just, they don't have coverage and now they have coverage to your network. Sell them connectivity right at the, on the spot. Right. So, so there is opportunity and I think that uh, it will take some time for operators to realize that there is opportunity, uh, but definitely there is a benefit for the consumer. And if something is good for the consumer, people will find the way to buy, to get it. <laughs> well, that's all the, uh, questions that I had for this episode. I just wanted to thank you, Christos, again, for joining us. And before we close off, I wanted to have you tell people where they can find you online if you're online anywhere and where they can follow for updates from you and your company. Uh, they can contact uh, me personally through my LinkedIn profile. Of course, they can uh, contact us through our website's uh, contact form. This is, uh, we respond to every request. We, we get a lot of different ideas, etc. We are open to everybody. We have actually uh, received orders and customers from around 170 countries. So we see a lot of uh, traction and we are uh, open to developers that want to build on top of what we created. And we are also open to listen to customers that have maybe specific needs that we haven't thought about. So LinkedIn and the website is, I think, a good place to start. Okay, well, thank you for the outro. And as you've already mentioned, you can find David and I at esper.io and this podcast is android bytes we have a web page up but you can also find all our podcast episodes on blog.esper.io so thank you again christos for joining us thanks david for joining me on another episode and thank you all for listening see you next time <laughs>